My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. If I haven't met you before, I would love to do that. Uh, just please don't be afraid to come up after the service, introduce yourself, um, or uh, yeah, and say hello. So um, today, over the past month or so, we have been exploring in this sermon series what it means to commit to partnering together in the gospel. That's been the main like, thrust of what we've been doing for the last five weeks. Uh, and, and to me, it's felt like I've gotten this chance to pull out a little bit about misconceptions about the faith, things about the faith that we tend to believe that just aren't really true. And I haven't framed it in that way, but like as I think back on what we've done, um, I've noticed a few that have come through uh, this message series. And the first misconception is what I would call the right rules misconception. Uh, and, and I think it's because it's easy to think that faith is like the set of boxes I've got to check in order to get right with God. These rules I got to follow in order to be right. Uh, but as we named with our first commitment a few weeks ago, uh, it, it's actually faith is this commitment to rebirth. It's this willingness to put God in the center of your life instead of yourself. And so that was our, our, our first misconception. The second is what I call uh, the get out of jail free misconception. Uh, often we tend to be drawn to faith, especially when we're young, uh, because we're afraid that we'll spend an eternity in hell if we don't. And that is our motivation to understand what faith is. But as we discussed with our second commitment, this commitment is not simply about our eternity, uh, that faith actually matters right now. It matters right now, uh, and, and, and how we engage with it shapes who we are today. And so a commitment to taking next steps and being shaped uh, is really what faith is about. And then the third misconception that we discussed last week is what I call the me and Jesus misconception, or the perspective that, that the most important aspect of my faith is my vertical relationship with God and, and uh, my obedience to him. But as we learned last week in particular, that uh, our faith actually isn't about you at all. It's about us together. And our, our final misconception that I'm going to talk about today, I think hits home on like a, a subtle misconception, but one that I think is really important because it's prevalent in our desire to make the church matter today. The idea that, that if we are people who hang together on these essential commitments, then the church becomes something that is relevant and matters in the world that we live in. And, and, and it's the misconception that I would say that the church has a mission. Misconception four is that the church has a mission. And on the surface, it feels like that's not a thing a preacher would say right? Like that actually does seem right, Scott. Maybe you've got it wrong. And maybe I do, but I'm going to spend the next half hour talking about why I think that's not the, not the case. Uh, and I get why we think that way because, you know, we talk about our mission partners. We talk about our work in the local community with hand-to-hand with the local schools. We talk about church planting both here in West Michigan and across the globe uh, with partners we have on mission in, in lots of places. We talk about our mission statement all the time that we are here to help people find their way back to God. It seems on the surface pretty clear that we have a mission, right? But believing that our church has a mission is actually a misconception that I think keeps us at an arm's length from fully partnering in the gospel. And so I hope today 
we can clarify that misconception into something that's much more holistic for you to understand. Something that actually can change the way you interact with faith as a whole. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, In January... We started a nine-month series on the book of Genesis. And I'm not going to kind of recap all that, but I do want to go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis and begin to take steps to understand this whole idea of mission as we see it in the scripture. So let's just start with the creation story. The first couple of chapters of Genesis are broken down into six days of God working, six days of creation. Right? And on the first day in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. God then speaks light into existence and he separates the light from dark and he names the light day and he names the dark night. And then God declares that this is good. That's the first day. On the second day, God creates the sky. And the sky forms this barrier between like water on the earth and moisture in the air. And God says, like, that's good. And then on day three, God creates dry land. Continents and islands rise above the water, large bodies of water called seas and ground called land. And God separates them out and God declares that all of that is good. And also on day three, he creates plant life and declares that that's also good. And then on day four, God creates all the stars and the heavenly bodies. And the movement of these bodies sort of tell us uh, about day and about night. And this work is also declared to be good by God. On day five, God creates all the life that lives in the water. He also makes all the birds and again, declares it all to be good. And then on day six, his last day of work before he rests on the seventh day, God creates all the creatures that live on dry land and he calls those good. And then he creates humanity, and he calls that very good. So what do you notice? What's the theme that you notice through every single day of creation? I'm asking. It's all good, baby. It's all good. That's the beginning, right? In the beginning, God's doing all this work, and it's good. It's the same thing every day, right? We might, in fact, look at that narrative of creation and have this, this understanding of the work of God in these stories is the way things were supposed to be, right? A perfect harmony of God and his creation that was all good. This idea of the way things were supposed to be is, is really captured in an Old Testament Hebrew concept called shalom, Maybe you've heard that before, shalom. Uh, write that word down, underline it, circle it. That's, that's the, the key to this whole conversation is this idea of shalom. Now, most of our English Bibles translate shalom as the word peace. But this is like way underselling what this idea of shalom means. Biblical scholars would say that shalom actually signifies a number of things, including salvation, Wholeness, integrity, soundness, community, connectedness, righteousness, justice, and well-being. Every single one of those words has like a meaning in English, a concept that we understand. But in the Hebrew, it's all shalom. We actually don't have an English word that really communicates all of what that means well. It's just shalom. Shalom. 
Shalom is the way God intended things to be when he created the universe. This was his original design that we see in those first couple of chapters. And as such, I would propose that is the mission of God. If God had a goal in creation, if he had a purpose that he's working out across time, that we see through the Bible, that we see through our lives, it is that God's mission must be shalom, wholeness, soundness, well-being, justice, all of it. And I say this in part because when you read through the Bible, you watch him invite different partners into that mission with him. In fact, right away, at the very beginning, he invites humanity into his mission. The first couple, Adam and Eve, were, were called to preserve the shalom that God had created. They were stewards of all of that goodness and wholeness. In Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Humanity's job was to steward and guide this creation he made. So that means that shalom is not just God's mission, but is also the fundamental work of us as humanity. And later on, uh, in the, as the biblical story moves forward, we see that the, the nation of Israel was invited to be partners in God's mission. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the equation. Humanity starts to kind of fray and pull apart. And then God decides to take a new approach in Genesis 12 where he calls Abraham. And he says, I'm going to build your family into a nation called Israel. And in Genesis 22, he says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants, your family, will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So Israel came into existence as a people with a mission entrusted to them by God for the sake of every other nation. All nations will be blessed through you. God's mission of shalom was their mandate. And as a community, they were supposed to bring the shalom to all nations. That was their job. Obviously, that plan uh, has some ups and downs throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout the whole story of the Bible. And God then next sends his only son, Jesus Christ. We see Jesus Christ even express the same understanding of God's mission. Because it seems very clear that, that Jesus built not his own agenda, but God's, his father's. In John 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then John chapter 4, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. His will was to do his father's will. Jesus was here on earth. Jesus was on the cross and in the tomb and resurrected explicitly to forward God's mission of shalom. Not just to the chosen, but to the world. And then finally, since then, his partner has been the church. 
We looked at the earliest beginnings of the church in in the book of Acts uh, and the gathering of God's people last week specifically. And what you start to notice is that even in those early iterations and moments and conflicts and conversations that the church begins to participate with Jesus's mission, which was Israel's mission, which was humanity's mission, which ultimately is God's mission of shalom. So here's why that first statement is a misconception. It's because the church does not have a mission, but God's mission of shalom has a church, has a partner. God's mission of shalom, of wholeness, uh, of of truth, of justice, of all of it, uh, God's mission of shalom is the foundation. It is the motivation for creation, It is the reason for Jesus Christ. It is the reason the church gathers and exists. God's mission of shalom has a church to move it forward. God's mission of shalom has humanity to move it forward on the earth. God's mission of shalom has a Bible. God's mission of shalom has a savior, Jesus Christ, to move this mission forward. So mission isn't just activity we do, isn't just a thing we do. What we think of as mission means the committed participation of God's people to the purposes of God, of shalom for the whole creation. Mission means the committed participation of God's people in the purposes of God's mission of shalom for the whole creation. Now, I understand that this can just feel like semantics. Like, it's just a different order of words, and it sounds clever, Scott, great job, but it just means the same thing. But I honestly think it's important that we recognize that a commitment to mission is not just giving stuff and being a good person. I think it is important that we recognize that commitment to mission isn't just giving our time and giving our our money to good things, but it is to commit ourselves to joining the mission of God, joining his mission of shalom throughout creation. So a commitment to mission is not just about being a good person for other people. It's something much, much larger. So I wanted to start there today. Like that's my preamble, right? That I wanted to start with this idea that we can hold together because in the text that we're going to look at uh, in, in the book of Acts in particular, we're going to see how this sort of plays out and what it looks like. So we're going to look in Acts chapter one, where we close out Jesus's ministry on earth, just as he was finishing his work on earth after the, the cross and the resurrection. He says this to his followers in Acts chapter one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So this is the author, Luke, the same guy who wrote the gospel, Luke. So he had a two-parter. The first part was, as he said, I'm going to write about all the stuff that Jesus did and said. And now he's writing a new book about what happened next to his friend, Theophilus. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Sort of this, like, you're going to be part of this mission now after I go. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, just for a pause for a moment. I don't know why they asked that question. seems like a weird question to ask with all this kind of stuff that Jesus is talking about. I don't exactly know what they meant with that. If I'm critical, I sort of look at that question and go, I think they missed the whole thing Jesus was trying to say. I think they were worried about Rome oppressing their country, Israel, and they were saying, hey, is now the time we rise up and fight and we kick those bad guys out? I think if I'm not you know, very generous, I think that might be what they're thinking. On the other hand, if I'm generous and think that maybe they understood God's mission of shalom, and where it came from, and how in their understanding, this was a mission given to the people of Israel to be a light for all the nations. So maybe they're going, look, we haven't done that well. Jesus came, he fixed it, he showed us how to do it better, and now that that mission has gone back to us as, as Israel. Maybe that's kind of what they're thinking. And then Jesus says this to them in, 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 in verse, eight, or verse seven. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set up by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think it's at this moment in the text that the church begins that he has now transferred uh, the participation of this mission to a church, to a group of people, his followers. And now they have the responsibility to move this mission of shalom throughout the world. He came to earth. He showed us what it meant, what it looked like to push shalom forward. And now he says, it's your turn. Your sin will no longer get in the way because of the work I've done. And he says this, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Now, when he said that, I think there's some meaning behind the literal city of Jerusalem and the literal regions of Judea and Samaria and the literal ends of the earth, right? These are people who grew up in a single culture, the Israelite culture, and that culture was central and centered in the city of Jerusalem, all of their kind of laws and all of their traditions and history all has this focal point of the temple in Jerusalem. So to them, Jerusalem is this city of like-minded religious Jews. And they have familiarity and they have disagreement, but they are a cohesive people together. That is Jerusalem to them. Judea and Samaria, on the other hand, are these regions outside of Jerusalem. And, they're, and, and within these places are people whom uh, Hebrews disagree with. There are some people that they won't even speak to. There are people that they look down on and say, those aren't even like regular humans. They're a subspecies, those Samaritans. And then Jesus says, the ends of the earth. And then there's like all these other people that as we watch the story of the church unfold, they meet, they called them Gentiles. And they're like, uh, we don't even understand the language you speak. We have nothing in common with you. 
with understanding that everything from the church to the Bible to Christ himself points us in this missional direction of shalom. I think this scripture points God's church in a specific direction on really large and really small scales. Because every single one of those places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, they all come with some kind of barrier or border that needs to be crossed. Some of them are physical barriers, such as distance. And it seems like God's church is responsible to bring shalom beyond just their neighborhood or their city or even their nation. There are relational barriers that need to be crossed, that God's church is responsible to bring shalom to those who are close to us, but also to those whom we have not yet met. There's also barriers of like difference, right? God's church is responsible to bring shalom to those uh, whom we disagree with, to those who view and experience the world vastly differently than we do. And so in this moment, God is clearly inviting his church to forward his shalom across boundaries, across barriers. And so as we, as the church today, hear this, we have to ask the same questions. I wonder if we have a barrier that keeps us from creating shalom. I wonder if there is a place we won't go, if there is a barrier we feel uncomfortable crossing. Is it a very specific person? They say, I can't bring shalom to that relationship. Is it a type of person that says like, I just can't be uh, about the work of shalom with that type of person? Is it a group of people? Is it a location of people? A barrier that you would not cross because you cannot bring shalom there. Will the Michigan fan offer shalom to a Buckeye? I mean, that's what's at stake here, right? That's the question that is intrinsically asked of God's church. Because God's mission has a church and that mission is inviting us to cross these barriers. So now that we kind of have that beginning of the church, this invitation to partner in God's mission across these, these barriers, what's interesting to me is what happens in the very next chapter of Acts. Um, first, uh, in Acts chapter 8, we see this line, the very first verse. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This moment in history uh, has been formational and foundational for the church. Uh, This moment in history forcibly moves them out of Jerusalem. It moves them out of the boundary, the barrier of their city where they know and care about everybody. And now they are scattered, right, into Judea and Samaria, the the text tells us. And then you get these two stories, two short stories. I just want to read them through, both of them. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there's great joy 
perhaps great shalom in that city. Hang on to that one. That's the first story, Samaritan City. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them uh, for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So here it is. In action, right? In action, we see these stories in Samaria, in this group of people that they believed were subhuman uh, in terms of their race. And now Shalom is moving forward in their city, in the lives of their leaders, Shalom in the lives of outsiders, Shalom in the life of a sorcerer. Neither of these people belonged to God's people in this moment. But God's mission had a church. And so now we see Shalom. One more story that follows directly after this. This one's a little bit longer. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, is the prophet talking about, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Philip sees an open door in this conversation. And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So now we've crossed some barriers to Judea and Samaria. And now we're crossing a barrier, barrier to Ethiopia, the ends of the earth. We actually discussed this story not too long ago in our, in our series about Jacob. But let me just give you a quick rundown of this person and what he represents to the people like Philip in Jerusalem because he has at least three huge barriers in his story. First is a a really obvious one to Hebrews and people who follow the law is that this man was a eunuch. And the Old Testament was very clear. Eunuchs are second-class citizens. Deuteronomy 23 even says eunuchs are not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. They're not allowed to be there. 
eunuchs are not allowed to participate in God's shalom. But God's mission had a church, right? Secondly, this man is Ethiopian, which means he's far away, but also in their culture means he's an enemy. Ethiopia in the Old Testament is referred to as the land of Cush. And all three times Cush is mentioned in the Old Testament, it is in reference to the Jewish people wiping out and destroying the people of Cush. They hated each other. They were enemies. One uh, biblical commenter says this about the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians were looked upon as the meanest and most despicable of nations. Ethiopians don't experience shalom, do they? But God's mission has a church in Philip. And then the third reason this man is just driving a chariot, which we don't have chariots today. At least I don't know anyone who has one. If so, I'm interested. But in their time, a chariot was basically like an ancient tank. It was a, it was a vehicle of warfare. It was a symbol of war, not shalom, wholeness, justice, peace, none of that. And this man works for the queen of that foreign empire who's been known to use their chariots, their tanks, to roll through the countryside and attack people just like Philip. So Philip, being told by God to go stand by that tank, right? It's like crossing the enemy lines and hoping you don't get taken captive. Ethiopians were not just people that Jews didn't like. They were riding their chariots, their tanks through their land, actively battling them. Warriors don't get to experience shalom, but God's mission has a church. And so crossing barriers to bring shalom is not just some high-minded ideal. It necessitates a commitment to cross barriers, to stand next to the tank, to talk to that person who is not supposed to be in the church, to cross barriers with people we might fear, to cross barriers with people whom we might feel uncomfortable, people we might even hate. Because God's mission has a church. God's mission of shalom, of wholeness, of connectedness, of the way things are supposed to be and were supposed to be at the beginning. God's mission of shalom has been extended to his church, inviting us to partner with him in crossing boundaries and barriers. Is there a barrier that God is inviting you to cross right now? a barrier that he's inviting you to say, on the other side of this, my shalom needs to take place. My connectedness, my wholeness, my justice, my liberty, all of it. It needs to go across that barrier. And I have a church to do that. So with that in mind, let me, let me leave us with a few questions today. I don't have them on the screen, but if you want to write them down, that's, that might be a good idea. Uh, three, three particular questions. Question number one, are you a shalom bringer or a shalom breaker? I mean, the answer is we're both, right? But are you a shalom bringer or a shalom breaker? 
Does your presence move God's mission of wholeness forward? When you show up in a room, when you show up in a conversation, when you show up at the lunchroom, when you show up in your class, when you show up with your family, does it move the mission of wholeness forward? Or has your presence, when it's shown up, broken that wholeness instead? Are you a shalom bringer or a shalom breaker? Question number one. Question number two, who gets your shalom? Who is in your Jerusalem or in your Samaria or in your ends of the earth? Do you concentrate that, uh, that presence of wholeness that you might choose to bring? Do you concentrate that in, 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 in one place, in one person, in one set of relationships, but not all of them? Are you actively engaging shalom with others who are not comfortable to you. Because how you do it in Jerusalem is not the same way you do it in Samaria. How you bring shalom in Judea is not the same thing as how you bring shalom in Ethiopia. We have to think about how we show up and who gets our shalom. And then the third question, what is your particular boundary for shalom? If we're on a mission to bring that wholeness and connectedness and, and, and peace, where's a barrier that kind of has set a fence for you? A barrier that has stopped you from moving that any further? What's the person or the persons or the situation where you just say, I can't bring shalom there. That's a boundary I don't want to cross. Are you a shalom bringer or shalom breaker? Who gets your shalom and where is your barrier? Those are questions people who are committed to this mission of God's ask. In fact, let's bring up that fourth partnership commitment. We've been talking about a commitment every single week uh, in this journey. And the fourth commitment uh, is this. I commit to partner in God's mission to help people find their way back to God by being generous, specifically with my time, my talents, and my treasures. This commitment exists because God's mission has a church. And we kind of include these uh, alliterative uh, three things at the end, right? But partnering in this mission goes beyond what you have. It goes beyond your spiritual gifts or your skills, your talents. It, It goes to all of who we are. These are just handles for us to say, this helps me bring all that I am. God has gifted you not only with time, but he has gifted you with specific talents. He has gifted you and blessed you with earthly treasures. It is God's plan and his intention that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this means that the stewardship and the generosity of your time and your talents and your treasures are important to the church because they move the mission forward. We believe that generosity is the defining characteristic of God's people who are committed to God's mission. I want to bring your attention to this this, uh, partnership book and card that we handed out today. Uh, We've used this throughout this series uh, to talk about partnership commitment. It's our way of understanding the biblical uh, understanding of partnering in the gospel. Right? Some churches call it membership. We call it partnership. We talked about that in week number one. Uh, but this, this booklet is for your processing. 
If you've been uh, with us throughout the series or any one of these past weeks and want to dive into a little more personal work or group work on that, that's what this is for. Uh, It's a way to explore these four commitments that we have talked about. Uh, We've preached through them in the last month. And we believe that these four commitments are what hold us together. These are the things that hold the church together in a time in a world where nothing stays together. And if we are people who covenant with each other on these things, then the church matters. Then the church moves the mission of Shalom forward. That's why we've spent this time talking about this. And uh, next week, I just want to give you a heads up. Next week, I'm actually going to give you an opportunity to respond to how God might be moving you. Um, how God might be inviting you to take a next step. We talk about next steps all the time. Laura talked about it earlier uh, on stage here. We want to give you an opportunity to say, I want to take a next step. And now, uh, we have this partnership card that's here. And I would say that like signing a partnership card or making a partnership commitment is never, ever, ever a prerequisite of belonging. You can belong here and you don't have to sign anything. That's not how it works, right? You don't get any special status, but I also recognize that perhaps God wants to invite you to a next step and you need to respond to that. So we'll talk about that next week about maybe a partnership commitment is that. I'd like you to consider what your next step is, whatever it might be. It may be partnership, it may be something else. But here's what I know. I know that God's church doesn't have a mission, that God's mission has a church. That God's mission of shalom for all nations has a church. And I also know that he's inviting you to partner in that mission, to bring your full self to that mission, to to build practices of generosity in your life so that you are used to crossing boundaries, crossing barriers, and bringing wholeness and peace and shalom wherever you go. Because God's church has a mission. God's mission as a church, I already said it backwards. But that mission is for the sake of the world. It's not just for you. It's not just for me. It's not just for us. It's not just for harbor churches. It's not just for the Christian church. It is for everyone, for the sake of the world. God's mission gave us creation and humanity and Israel and the Savior and the church. So my invitation to you is God's invitation. Would you partner in his mission with all that you have, all that you are for the sake of the whole world? Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful this morning for my friends. God, as we've worked through these commitments over the last few weeks, as we've built one upon the other, I can't imagine making this commitment alone. But God, I pray that in the midst of Uh, difficult barriers and boundaries in each of our lives and in our communities that we'd work together to cross those. God, I I pray that in the midst of uh, our own desires to put ourselves in the center of our life, that we would work together to place you there, that we would uh, be generous of spirit, that we would be generous of heart and that you would empower us to live beyond ourselves. May we together as your church 
accept the mission that you have given us. God, I am so grateful that you didn't stop at any boundary or barrier so that I could be here today, that each of us could be here today. So God, I pray that we may walk in the example and the calling that you have set for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.